hello, good morning. My name's Amy. It's great to be speaking to you this morning. It's a real privilege. Um, as Sophie said, we are going to be continuing today with our Mark series. So for those of you that have missed some of the weeks so far, quick reminder, um, Mark is the book that comes right after Matthew in the New Testament. And it's an account of the good news of Jesus written by a guy called Mark, unsurprisingly. Um, and he was a Christian scribe. He was a co-worker of Peter and Paul, who were some of Jesus' disciples. And he basically collected Peter's eyewitness testimony and he shaped it into this book of Mark. So last week we heard about chapter 14 and Jenny spoke to us about extravagant worship and the lady who poured out that whole jar of perfume over Jesus. And this week we're going to be carrying on with um, Mark 14 and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 25. So it should come up on the screen behind me as well and we're going to start reading from verse 12. It says this, and on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out. They went to the city, and they found it just as he had told him, and they prepared the Passover. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is preparing to eat this Passover meal, and this was a meal that had been eaten by Jews 1,500 years, every year for the last 1,500 years. And um, Jewish law stated that Passover had to be eaten within the city of Jerusalem. So what would happen is people who had spare rooms in Jerusalem, they would get them ready and they would rent them out so that people could use them. People who lived outside the city could come in and could celebrate Passover in the lawful way. Um, and at this point in the story, Jesus and his disciples are at a place called Bethany, which is about two miles out from Jerusalem. So they're thinking through how they're going to get there, where they're going to celebrate this Passover meal. I don't know if you remember last year, the royal wedding. Who remembers it wasn't that long ago. Uh, I was in Windsor just a couple of months beforehand with work, which was the place where the royal wedding happened. And um, I met some people there, and I was, they were sort of saying, oh, everything, everybody's getting ready for the royal wedding. I was saying, what kind of things are they doing? They said, all the hotels have been completely refurbished. And everybody who's got any kind of spare room is getting it ready and kitting it out so they can put it up on Airbnb so they can rent it out for this huge influx of people that are going to come to Windsor to celebrate the royal wedding. And this is a little bit like what we see happening in Jerusalem. It's a little bit like a very early version of Airbnb. But there is another factor that is at play here. So Passover would have lasted up until midnight. And that would have meant that Jesus had to stay in the city of Jerusalem until late at night. Now we heard last week, if you remember, that the city was a place that was under the jurisdiction of the priests. And if you remember, the priests didn't like Jesus very much. And in fact, at this time, they're plotting to kill him. So what we see here is that Jesus has made arrangements with somebody to be able to use some kind of room, probably in a place where he's not so well known, um, where he, people aren't going to recognise him, so that he can have this Passover meal with his disciples. And the way that they're to find this place where they're to go is to find this guy who is carrying a jar of water. That wouldn't have been the customary way that men would have carried water at that time. They would have carried it in kind of skins in their hands, and women would have carried jars of water on their heads. So this guy in a crowd, he would have been pretty easy to spot because he was doing something quite different 
to everybody else. And then the fact that they're told to go and say to the master of the house, the teacher has sent me, suggests probably that this was a prearranged thing um, and that the person knew that they were talking about Jesus. So we can now kind of picture this scene where they're going to celebrate the Passover meal, hidden away in this furnished upper room in this city of Jerusalem that just would have been buzzing with people. And we see Jesus having lots of different meals throughout the book of Mark. But this is not just an everyday meal. It's not one he can just eat on the grass or at the beach or wherever, or wherever else. He has gone to the hassle and the expense, potentially, we don't know if he paid for it, of using this room, a good room as he could get, because he was celebrating a sacred feast. And this is a significant meal. There's a real significance to it. And to understand what that significance is, we need to go back a bit, or actually quite a lot. We need to go back to the book of Exodus um, and have a look at where this all started. So we're going to do that together. The story of Passover is told in Exodus chapters 11 and 12, but there is quite a lot that has happened in the book of Exodus up until that point. So what I'm going to attempt to do is give you a very quick whistle-stop tour of the first 10 chapters of Exodus. Are you ready? Okay. Um, So this is the story of Moses. We see how he was saved from the Nile as a baby, and he was taken into Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh was the very person who had decreed that all Hebrew baby boys, like Moses, should be killed in the Nile. So that in itself is incredible. Um, And he grows up, and he looks out one day when he's grown up on the plight of his people, the Hebrews, who were enslaved to the Egyptians. And he looks out and he sees one particular Egyptian who is trying to kill a Hebrew. And he rushes to this guy's defense and he ends up killing the Egyptian. Now he thinks, Moses thinks the secret is safe, he's got away with it, it's all okay. But he's not. Word gets out and he is wanted dead. So he has to flee from Egypt and he goes to a land called Midian, And when he's there, he settles down, he gets married, he has kids, and he ends up becoming the shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep. So you you think he's gone from prince in Pharaoh's household to shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep as an outcast in Midian. And then 40 years after he leaves Egypt, when he's out shepherding one day, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he commissions him and he says, you are going to be my instrument, you are going to be the one that I use to draw and to lead my people out of Egypt. And um, this is such a clear picture, isn't it, of God's character, because he has said, I have heard and seen and known, I've remembered the plight of my people in Egypt, and I am going to bring them out, I'm going to rescue them. And he, it's just such a picture of God's love and God's care. Um, you've got to think at this point, as um, God is encountering Moses at the burning bush, that he is 80 years old by this point. Okay, so he's been in, he's been in Midian for 40 years by this point. And he's kind of like, I'm not really sure I'm the guy for the job. He's begun to get pretty settled in Midian, and he's begun to forget. We see evidence in the book of Exodus that he has begun to forget the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he has begun to live an unsubmitted life. He's begun to get comfortable in this foreign land with its foreign gods. And so he kind of has this bit of back and forth with God of, I shouldn't go, and God's like, well, it's not going to be you, it's going to be me. He doesn't bolster Moses' self-esteem. He points to himself as the one who is going to do it. So eventually, Moses goes, goes back to Egypt, goes to Pharaoh and said, let God's people go. And he says, no. 
And so God sends plagues on Egypt. Nine different plagues we see he sends on Egypt. And each time the story goes the same way. Uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. He says, no, the plague comes. And then Pharaoh says, okay, you can go if the plague stops. And then that happens. And as soon as it happens, conveniently, Pharaoh changes his mind and says, no, actually, no, you have to stay. And each of these plagues was a way of God demonstrating his authority as the one true God. Because they each dealt with one of the Egyptian gods at the time. So I don't know if you know, but um, one of the Egyptian gods used to be depicted as a frog. So the plague of frogs, that was kind of about that. The fact that God is saying, no, I'm in control. And also, I don't know if you knew, but they weren't allowed to kill frogs. So imagine that. Your house is overrun with frogs and you're not allowed to kill them because they saw them as this like sacred animal. Um, so this is what happens, and this cycle goes on nine times, nine, nine different plagues. And then finally, in chapters 11 and 12, the time comes for the tenth and final plague. And this is where God is going to bring about the death of the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. There is going to be no Egyptian household that goes untouched by this plague. From Pharaoh's household to the prisoner's household, even the firstborn of their cattle is going to die. And this is so significant, this plague. It's like the climax of all the plagues because in that culture at that time, the firstborn son would have been really significant. They would have been um, the favourite, if you like. They would have been the hope for that family's continuation and their future. So a lot would have been invested in them. They would have been the, the kind of the favourite one. And so what this, this kind of killing of all of the firstborn sons of Egypt represents is a loss of hope for that whole nation's future. So it's a big deal. Um, So we're going to have a look um, at Exodus 12 together. All the Egyptian households are going to be affected by this plague. None of the Israelites are going to be. And so God gives some very, very specific instructions that we're going to have a look at about what's going to happen and how he's going to make that distinction between Egypt and Israel. So let's have a look. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Pause. Hold on a second. What have you just said? So he's saying here, this is a new thing that I'm doing. This is about the birthing of the nation of Israel. And because of that, your whole calendar year now is going to shift to reflect the fact that I'm doing a new thing, that this is a significant thing that I've done. So their their year starts from that point. Carries on. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month... Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbour shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So they had to keep this lamb four days in their household. Think about that for a second. And partly that was to check that it really was without blemish, that it really could be used to be the sacrifice. Um, Tim and I were on holiday a couple of weeks ago in Suffolk, and we went to a farm there, as you do when you're in Suffolk. There's not loads else to do. Um, And we found... Um, this farm that had these lambs and they were so cute and we got to feed them and I thought you might want to see a picture. There you go. Isn't it cute? And they were like skipping around the fields 
So cute. Um, so you imagine, you've got one of these skippity little lambs in your household for four days, and then you've got to kill it. Imagine how you would feel about that. Imagine how your kids would feel about that, their new pet, this lamb, and you're telling them that it's got to die. And this would have been a really hands-on, a really messy thing. They would have been confronted with the blood. They would have been confronted with the physicality of this sacrifice. This picture of this innocent animal that was having to die so that they could live. Carries on in verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plagues will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So these are the instructions for how the Israelites are going to be kept safe. The detail of how this Passover is going to happen. And it's going to be through the blood of the spotless lamb painted on their door frame. Now, this wasn't just some mundane or slightly strange thing that God was asking them to do. This was God's way of saving them. This was the lifeline that he was giving them. Um, Because in the middle of his judgment of Egypt, he is saying, I'm going to save the Israelites. And because the lamb pays the penalty for the Israelites' sin rather than the Israelites themselves. Now, you see also in this bit that they're told to eat bitter herbs. Now, they were to act as a reminder for them of the bitterness of slavery that they'd experienced in Egypt, lest they forget and start to look back on their time in Egypt with rose-tinted glasses, which we'll see later on, that they very quickly went on to do. And you also see here that they're to eat it in a posture of being ready to go. They've got their belt on, they've got their sandals on, they've got their staff in their hand. Why was that? Well, that was because God knew that it wasn't going to take until the morning for Pharaoh to say, get out of Egypt, for them to be freed, for them to be told to go. We're going to carry on reading from verse 14. It says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. What's the deal about leaven? What even is leaven? Well, leaven or yeast is the stuff that makes bread rise. And in the Bible, it usually represents sin. And when you think about that, it kind of makes sense because often we talk about pride being the root of lots of different types of sin. And when we describe someone as proud, we talk about them as being kind of puffed up. And that's what yeast or leaven does to bread. So this picture here of saying, have no leaven in your houses, get rid of all the leaven, leave it behind, is a picture of saying, leave behind the sinful ways of Egypt. It's another picture of a fresh start. 
So then the rest of this chapter goes on to explain that everything happens exactly as God says that it will. All of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians die. The Israelites are kept safe. And Pharaoh sends the Israelites away before the night is even over. So through this passage in Exodus, hopefully we can see the significance of the Passover meal and why it's been observed throughout the generations up until this point we're at in Mark. And it was a way of teaching about Israel's past. It was a way of remembering the uh, way that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt into freedom to be able to worship God. It was about them remembering their redemption. But now as we jump back into the furnished room, back into Mark, where Jesus is about to eat this Passover meal with his disciples, we're going to see something incredible. We're going to see that this Passover meal was pointing to something far, far greater all along. Now, the account of the meal in Mark is actually sandwiched in between two warnings about human weakness. First up, we've got the warning about um, Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And then we've got uh, the warning about Peter's denial of Jesus. So let's have a look from verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So it's evening, they're at the table, about to eat this Passover meal. And what we see here is they're in a very, very different posture to what we heard in Exodus. Remember when they had their belts on and their sandals on ready to go? But here they're reclining around the table. And what that is, is a picture of them enjoying the freedom that God had won for them. So you can picture the scene, they're reclining around this table, about to have this Passover meal, and then suddenly, Jesus warns them of what's going to happen later that same night. That one of the twelve sat with him there, one of his disciples who's been following him for the last few years, is going to be the one to betray him. And you can spot the huge, huge dramatic irony that's going on here. He's hidden away in secret, having this Passover meal, and they've arranged this special room, and he's surrounded by the people who are closest to him. But they are going to be the very ones who betray and deny him. Now, I think sometimes people feel a bit sorry for Judas. Like maybe he was some helpless victim in it all, and he was predestined to be the one that betrayed Jesus. And like he had a choice. But they didn't have a choice, though. But that is not the case. He did. He had a choice. He could choose. He was free to choose. And he made that choice very, very deliberately. And God knew what he would choose beforehand. I also think it's pretty easy for us to point at Judas and Paul and say, "Um, well, that was really bad, like really bad. I mean, I would never, never do anything like that. But the Bible is not about us looking at other people's sin from some kind of distant world. The Bible is to highlight sin in our own lives and how we have fallen short of the lives that we were supposed to live to. Judas' love of money, we heard last week, is what caused him to betray Jesus. And our love of money is sinful too. Um, Peter, and we'll hear more about him next week, he was acting out of fear rather than faith when he chose to deny Jesus. How many decisions do we make that are born out of fear rather than faith? 
when we're not trusting in God, we're, we're trusting in something and it's sinful because we're trusting in something other than God. We're trusting in ourselves or our reputations or somebody or some other thing. And it's idolatrous. So the disciples sinned against God. We sin against God and we are just as much in need of a saviour. So the next bit in Mark goes on to address this very need of a saviour that Mark's just highlighted. Let's have a look at verse 22. As they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Wow. Just think about that for a second. Suddenly here we've got Jesus taking this Passover meal, this meal full of symbolism, and completely flipping it on its head. And the Passover meal would have involved using all these different things on the table to teach about the significance and the, the, the reason why they were celebrating Passover. So it wouldn't have been weird for his disciples that he was using the bread and the cup as symbols. But what is incredible here is that he is not, when he's speaking, he's not pointing back to the exodus from Egypt. He is pointing forward to his own death and resurrection and what that means. He's prophesying about his death and resurrection and the significance, the importance of that, what it will achieve on the cross. So Jesus here is pointing to himself as the fulfillment of God's promises. He's pointing to himself as the saviour of the world, as the fulfillment of the old covenant of the law. And what he's doing as well is illuminating the fact that the Passover, for what it always was, that it was always a foreshadow of him, of his death and his resurrection. So we're going to have a look at these two different symbols that he's just talked about, the bread and the wine, in a little bit more detail. So first of all, the bread. This would have been unleavened bread, It would have probably looked a bit like pita bread, if you want something to kind of imagine as we're talking about this. And it was a picture of sinlessness. There was no leaven in the bread. There was no sin in Jesus. And he takes it, he gives thanks for it, and he tears it apart with his hands, and he passes it to each of his disciples. And this, as he did that, he kind of told them, this is this represents my body, my body that is going to be given and broken for you on the cross the very next day. Now, bread would have been common Jewish food at that time. Life would have pretty much depended on it. It would have been a staple of their diet. And this, what we see here, is not just about physical nourishment. It's about much more than that. It's about spiritual nourishment. It's about complete dependence on Jesus. Jesus, who described himself as the bread of life. That's what this is about. And then we've got the wine. So the Passover meal, as I've said, it was a long meal. It would have lasted up till midnight. And they had four different glasses of wine. And they would have used them to like, break up the meal. So what Jesus is doing here, he takes one of these cups of wine. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he's taking a symbol and he's reappropriating it again. The, now, the blood of the Passover was from sacrificial lambs. And we heard earlier it was necessary because the Israelites were sinners, just as the Egyptians were sinners. And they were saved by the interposing of the blood of the spotless lamb. In other words, the Israelites were covered by the blood of the lamb. 
But what we see here is incredible because Jesus is declaring himself to be the true Passover lamb who's going to die on the cross the very next day in order to make a way for everyone who believes in him to be covered by his blood and to be saved from their sin and death by his grace. And there's two key words at the end of this sentence, which are for many. So this, as Jesus is saying this, it's not just for his disciples. It's not just for people who were alive at the time. It's for many. It's for us today in 2019. We can be saved by grace through faith too. So I don't know if you've ever noticed. It's still here. I was worried it was going to be gone. But there's a symbol up on the wall up here of um, a cross and a lamb, and that is a symbol of Jesus. And it's amazing that we've got this in here, because when we come on a Sunday morning, and we can be reminded of why we're here, it's to worship Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we, um, I've lost my train of thought. We see Jesus described in this way throughout the rest of the New Testament as the Lamb of God, and it's incredible that we've got that to remind us of that. Um, Okay, so in this verse, it also says, what is this bit about uh, my blood of the covenant? What is that about? Well, a covenant talks about the ongoing relationship that we have with God. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were living in freedom, but they kept on sinning. They kept on sinning, and that meant that they caused a separation to come between them and God. So God says, okay, to be able to deal with your ongoing sin, when you sacrifice an animal, that will pay the penalty for your sin instead of you. So that's what they did. They would um, sacrifice these animals, and the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled onto them. Imagine that, as like an outward sign that they had been forgiven. But it was imperfect. They had to keep on making these sacrifices. It didn't cleanse them on the inside, and it couldn't deal with sin once and for all. They were imperfect sacrifices. But what we see in this bit is Jesus saying, no more. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus came as the final, the once for all sacrifice. And following Jesus' death and resurrection, they wouldn't have needed to make animal sacrifices anymore. They wouldn't have had to deal with the messiness of these temporary and outward sacrifices because Jesus dealt with their sin once and for all. And his sacrifice cleanses completely inside and out. We're not just ritually pure, but we can know our conscience cleansed. We can know freedom from guilt and shame. And when you think about what that would have meant for early followers of Jesus, you think about this. For generations... All they've ever known has been these temporary sacrifices. And then suddenly they're being told, you don't need to do that anymore. Jesus has done it all on the cross. Wow. And every time I think about that, I, uh, I want to sing. <laughs> I'm not going to sing, don't worry. But there are some particular words that come to my mind. Um, and I'll share them with you, see if you can recognize the song. It says, I will trust in the cross of my Redeemer. I will sing of the blood that never fails, of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, of death defeated, and life without end. Jesus is our beautiful saviour. His blood never fails. And for those of us who have put our trust in him, who have asked for his forgiveness and who are living our lives submitted to him, we can know the freedom and purpose that comes from his death and resurrection, what he has won for us on the cross. Um, And if you don't know his forgiveness, you can know it today. There is an opportunity for you this morning to know his forgiveness. And if you do know it, I've got a question for you. 
I want to ask you, are you living in the good of the freedom that Jesus has won for you? Because we have an enemy who loves to remind us of things, who loves us to make to feel shame about stuff that we've done in the past. And he will often try and remind us of stuff just as we're about to take a step forward in faith in something. And God doesn't want us to live that way. You know, we can answer, I am forgiven, I am free, I am covered by the finished work of Jesus and my life is secure in Christ. So this is a cup, this is the wine or the, the grape juice that represents the blood of the covenant that has been poured out for many And just as there's nothing magical about eating the bread, there is nothing magical about drinking the wine or the grape juice, but it is symbolic of the complete purification from sin that we can know through Jesus. And we aren't sprinkled with the the wine, we drink it. And that's significant. So with these words in Mark 14, we see Jesus institute the Lord's Supper, or what we sometimes refer to as communion. And in Matthew's account of the story, he also includes the words, do this in remembrance of me. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying, no longer take the bread and the cup and in remembrance of your um, freedom from slavery in Egypt, but do it in remembrance of me, who by dying for you is going to bring you out of spiritual bondage, which is a slavery far, far worse than slavery under the Egyptians. And I'm going to establish you in freedom As God's children, do it in remembrance of me. So just as Passover was observed down the generations as a way of remembering what happens in the Exodus, we today still, we observe the Lord's Supper or communion down the generations. And you might have been here on a Sunday morning when we have taken communion together. Why? Why do we still do this as a church? Well, if you walk around town centres around the country, who's ever seen a war memorial when they've been around and about? You see them everywhere. I was walking past one the other day and it had these huge words inscribed on it, lest we forget. And these war memorials are there to remind us of the people who died in wars. And we need these reminders because we are forgetful people, right? Why else do we keep photo albums and um, Guest books, and if you're really cheesy like me and Tim, a memories box full of all the things that we remember, embarrassing, you know, um, of cards and things that we've written to each other and places that we've been. I've got a reminder on my hand, my wedding ring. It's a reminder of the promises that I made to my husband. And we have, I stick post-it notes anywhere I'm going to see them to remind me. We've got reminders on our phones. We've got diaries. We need these reminders. We need constant, constant reminders because we are so quick to forget. And you know what? I know that I can be quick to forget the faithfulness of God. Charles Spurgeon, who is a famous theologian, once said, we are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. I know I'm guilty of that. I can forget God's faithfulness to me. Maybe you can as well. And there is nothing, um, nothing more significant that we need to remember than Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I felt challenged recently that we as a family need to put some things in place to remember the things that God has done for us and his faithfulness to us. We heard this morning in the worship about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. His word kept coming time and time again. We've got this thing called, a, it's like an Advent thankfulness Advent calendar that we've devised that helps us to remember and thank God for things that he's done for us through the year. But that's packed away now until December. And we kind of need some other things to be put in place to help us to remember God's faithfulness. And as I've said, there's nothing more significant that we need to remember than Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And not just because, oh, wouldn't it be cute to remember, like with our memories box, but because if we don't remember 
the consequences of that are awful. The book of Exodus tells us that later on in the story when the the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were facing trial in the desert, that they started to look back on their time in Egypt and they started to forget what it was like to be slaves and they started to long to go back for silly things like food. They started going, oh, I know, I know I was a slave, but oh, I really miss cucumbers and melons and garlic and oh, leeks, I really miss leeks. And we look at them and we think, are you stupid? You were slaves and now you're free and you're worried about leeks. But we do the same thing. When we forget the freedom that Jesus won for us, when we start to look back on our old lives of sin and we start to think about what we had there, we're doing the same thing. When we think like, oh, I remember when I was in charge of my life and I could do whatever I wanted with my money and my time and my gifts, where I could think whatever I wanted and I could say whatever I wanted and it didn't matter. Or maybe we're a bit more subtle than that. And we think things like, we just kind of slip back into old thought patterns and we start relying on ourselves and depending on our own good works or um, start trusting in something or someone other than God, money or another person or a relationship or whatever it is. We forget the freedom we have in Jesus. We forget the fact that he alone is our saviour. And so that is why, as a church, we take communion. It's about those of us who are followers of Jesus remembering our redemption. But it's also deeper than remembering. It's about us participating in or sharing in Jesus' body and blood spiritually by faith. Now, what does that mean? If we have a look in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar, So what this is saying is the Israelites who partook of the sacrifices that were made on the altar shared in them or they benefited from them and they enjoyed the the forgiveness of God. And it's saying the same thing. When we believers, when we take of the bread and we, we drink of the cup, it's not just about a physical nourishment, but it's a spiritual nourishment too because we are nourished with the benefits that Jesus won for us on the cross. So communion is about us remembering redemption, it's about us being nourished spiritually, but it's also about us remembering what it was that we're redeemed for. Now the early church we read in Acts devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to the taking of communion. They regularly remembered what Jesus had done for them and their purpose to share the good news with people who didn't believe in Jesus. And they were being persecuted, some of them were even killed for their faith. You imagine... Next time you're at your community group and you look around the room and there's a few empty seats this week. And it's not just because somebody couldn't make it. It's because they've been thrown into prison or they've been killed for following Jesus. And you think as you took communion together as a group, what would you be feeling at that moment? What would you be thinking? I don't know, but I imagine that there would be a heightened sense of awe at what Jesus had done on the cross. I imagine that there would be a real deep sense of fellowship, of community with those people. And I imagine that there would be a real sense of urgency as well in sharing 
the good news of Jesus. Now, we don't, um, we don't long for persecution at all. There are countries around the world today where people are still persecuted and killed for following Jesus. But, oh, that we would have that same sense of awe that they must have had at Jesus' sacrifice, that we would really live in the good of our sins forgiven, of our conscience cleansed, that communion wouldn't just be some nice add-on or some slightly strange tradition, but that we would take it seriously, that it would mean something to us. And oh, that we would have that same sense of community amongst us, that there would be a deep and growing and genuine love for one another. And I'm not just talking about the type of community or love that you could find in your netball team or your football team or your pub quiz team or any other kind of team, but the type of supernatural love for each other that is only possible through the Holy Spirit. We are called to demonstrate honour. We are called to outdo each other in showing honour. We're called to demonstrate God's love by our love together as a church. What might it look like for us to continue growing in that as a body together? And finally, oh, that we would have that same sense of urgency in sharing the good news of Jesus and that our minds would be focused, not distracted. Jesus, forgive us when we have partaken of communion and we've been thinking more about the lunch that we're going to have in an hour's time than we have been about thinking about your once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, what that achieved for us and what it means for our life today. Now, one day, those of us who trust in Jesus... The church, his bride, we are going to share with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this day when Jesus, we're going to see him face to face, it's going to be glorious. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the final verse that we're going to look at today, which is um, Mark 14, 25. It says, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the Lord's Supper communion is a foreshadow of that great feast to come when we see Jesus face to face. So as we take communion, we are remembering our redemption. We're remembering that we have been redeemed. We're remembering that we are being redeemed and we're looking forward to that day when we will be redeemed. And in light of all of that, the posture of our hearts should be that we're repenting, that we are thanking God for what he's done and that we are celebrating what he will do in the future. We're to live as an expectant people, no longer held back by sin and shame. Death's defeated. Our conscience is cleansed. We are submitting ourselves fully to Jesus again. And as we gather as a church to take communion, we're saying we are one body of believers. Let's go again.